Hello, and welcome to Thrive with Charlene McRae. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, the sixth graders of Meyer Levin Junior High School in Brooklyn had a routine. Every morning, they gathered for a town hall meeting where they would cheer on each other's successes and support one another through struggles and sing together. I was lucky to experience that joy in the morning. I can tell you, because I was there, those children left the gathering feeling energized and focused and uplifted by the community around them. And it's all part of New York City's new approach to social-emotional learning and restorative justice. One year ago, we committed to bring social-emotional learning to all 1,800 of our public schools. So, where are we now? How have our schools changed? And what are students and their families getting out of this new approach? Well, my guest today is exactly the right person to ask. Richard Carranza is chancellor of the New York City Department of Education, the largest school system in the nation. That makes him responsible for educating 1.1 million students in more than 1,800 schools. Chancellor Carranza has led school systems in Nevada, Texas, and California. He began his career nearly 30 years ago as a high school bilingual social studies and music teacher and then he was a principal in Tucson, Arizona. He also happens to be my favorite mariachi performer. Chancellor Carranza, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for the opportunity, First Lady McRae. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Chancellor, you're a real people person and so dynamic. And, and here you are now in quarantine, um, kind of locked in behind a computer. How are you doing it? How are you managing? Well, I think... Uh, like everyone, that's probably the hardest part because uh, I do love being around people and, and talking to people and, you know, the personal contact that you have. I thrive on that, especially in school, seeing seeing our youngest New Yorkers uh, and the joy of learning. So that's been the difficult part. The uplifting part, though, has been to see just the heroic efforts of New Yorkers responding to the pandemic and to the teachers and principals and, and parents who, who are now uh, honorary teachers as well, how they've adapted to all of the safety precautions we've had to take. So I'm uplifted when I hear of those uh, stories uh, but I miss my people. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> you know, you're one of those special people. Um, and you radiate joy in your work. I, you can feel it when you talk. You're so inspiring to be around. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story? What made you want to become an educator? Well, thank you. I, I wanted to become an educator because the public schools were what allowed me to have opportunities to do what I'm doing now. I'm I'm a son of a journeyman sheet metal worker and a, and a beautician, a hairdresser. And my parents didn't go to college, but they knew that my brother and I should go to college. And they didn't know what that meant, but they supported us. And when I entered school as a kindergartner way back when, uh, I only spoke Spanish. So I would be what you would consider or be called an English language learner. And it was because of 
the love and the caring and the the motivation that my teachers had for me because they uh, empowered me to push myself because they pushed me. My brother and I were able to go to college and we're now able to do what we do. That's why I wanted to become a teacher because I remembered what that felt like uh, and I wanted to do the same for children. And that's why I became a teacher. Well, I think that there are a lot of other, uh, a lot of people out there who would identify with your story. I I can tell you that uh, I'm actually a a daughter of a, a hairdresser as well. And education was, you know, the most important thing in our home. I Parents really pushed for for education to be the most important thing that we we tended to, and that meant you know making sure our attendance at school was was perfect, and doing our homework, and taking advantage of any opportunities that came our way. But everything has changed now. We're living in such a different environment. How have children and families been coping during the quarantine? You really get a first-person look at all of this. What challenges are they experiencing, and and how are our schools helping them to get through it? As I mentioned, one of the things that I try to do is to stay connected uh, with uh, our teachers and our schools, and I've uh, been invited to be part of some of these virtual classrooms where students are discussing how they're feeling, and uh, as well as other academic subjects. But it's been tough. Because I think for everyone, this has been a traumatic event for us, Uh, not the least of which is, you know, being forced to stay at home. But there are many students and teachers and and their parents that have lost somebody to the the COVID-19 virus, or they know somebody, or unfortunately, in the Department of Education, we've lost some principals, some teachers, paraprofessionals. So somebody knows somebody that's been affected. And and we've seen that play out before our very eyes. So the trauma that our students are dealing with and the adults are dealing with is something that uh, we're we're very focused on being able to address. And one of the things that I really appreciated in, in the intro to the podcast was where we talked about one year ago where we said social emotional learning would be citywide and we believed in it. And you remember, not everyone thought that we should be investing time or resources in social emotional learning, get harder on the academics. I don't hear that anymore because everyone understands that schools must be places of healing and that we have a responsibility. A student won't learn unless a student feels safe and supported and and comfortable. That's part of being in a school. So I'm just so proud of New York City and the the work of this administration uh, to really put social emotional learning uh, in place because who could have predicted a year ago that we would be uh, going through a pandemic and those investments and that focus are really yielding uh, some real benefits now as we're able to help students and, and adults cope with the trauma that they've experienced. Yes, you, you know, we never could have known that we were going to be presented with, with such a challenge and that so many of our, our young people and, and their families would have to cope with so much grief, so much loss. Um, I just, you know, can't imagine the stories that uh, these children are going to come back into school with and what they'll, they'll, what kind of emotional burdens they'll be carrying. I, I want to thank you for helping us to get social-emotional learning as part of the core curriculum of our, in our schools. I, I do think it uh, 
is an important part of the foundation for our, our children. And I'm, I'm just so pleased that we have come such a long way uh, in, in this journey to help people understand that, that children can't, you know, it's not all about math and science and, and, and English, that, that, that children do have to learn how to identify their emotions and manage their emotions to be able to learn. Can you tell me, uh, for, for those who may not have heard about social-emotional learning or are not familiar with the term, what, what does it mean? Well, that's a great question. Social-emotional learning uh, is, is well-known in the education circles, but if I was to put it into everyday language, social-emotional learning means uh, that students not only learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic, but students also know how to communicate their emotions, how to work well with others, how to live socially uh, in a positive way with others, and more importantly, have the language to be able to ask for help and assistance without them seeing themselves as being stigmatized. Uh, Social-emotional learning helps to develop healthy adults. Uh, and 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 it's important because we're not always uh, uh, predisposed to say, hey, you know, I'm not feeling well today, uh, and I need I need to talk to somebody. So social emotional learning are all of those practices, and you've already touched upon many of those restorative practices. Instead of suspending students, how about we help students work through a process where they can recognize what they've done that is not acceptable and make amends for that. If they have to apologize, they apologize. Uh, and then they learn a lesson from that so that they, do, they don't do that again. Now we've kept students in school and school isn't the place that's gonna kick me out every time I make a mistake, but there are adults and others in the school that will help me to recognize what I need to do better so that I, so I can stay in school and stay with my friends and stay having fun, all of that is part of what we do with social emotional learning. Uh, and you know, for folks that say, well, how do you know this is effective? I can tell you that uh, we have seen in, in terms of the numbers of indicators, uh, suspensions during the first half of this school year, suspensions dropped by over 20%. We had a real drop in safety related issues uh, by 52%. We, we had over 200 elementary schools in their first year and 500 high schools in their first year see dramatic reductions in out-of-class uh, suspensions for their students. We saw more social workers that are in classrooms. When I walk schools, the whole school had a whole way of checking their emotion today. How do you feel today? And they had the language to be able to talk about how they were feeling today instead of what used to be the way it happened when I was in school. Oh, you have a bad attitude, so I'm going to send you out of class. No, maybe that student just had something happen at home. Maybe that student's parent just lost a job. Maybe that's a range of issues. All of that is social emotional learning and why we think it's so important to keeping our students not only actively engaged, but in school in a healthy, safe environment. You know, Chancellor, I heard one of the uh, teachers talking about social emotional learning and, and laughing as she, des- as she described what was happening in her classroom, um, the, the change in school climate and, 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 and how circle time, uh, she described it as circle time was really the kids' the favorite time uh, in the day. 
but they all wanted to do circle. I want to know if one of you can tell me what you can do when you're frustrated or angry that doesn't hurt anyone. Can somebody tell me that? To meditate. 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 Oh, that's a good one. You've learned a lot. And you want to? And just breathe in, stay calm. Try mm -hmm. not to get your anger out when Oh, breathing, mm -hmm. <laughs> taking a pause. I love that. So you've learned quite a bit. So it's the last day of school, and I know you're getting ready to celebrate, but, and you've got a lot of feelings about that. Can you all show me what you do when you're happy all together? Show me what you do. Clap Yeah, so it's it's one of the many kinds of activities that teachers and schools use. But you start you, you we we like to start as adults. We like to start our day on a positive foot. So why don't we do that with children as well? So instead of coming in, sit down, take out your notebooks. Here's the lesson. It's we're going to come together. We're going to sit in a circle so nobody's outside uh, of the communication, and we're going to talk about something and something that's important. So, for example, I just recently logged into um, a, a classroom where we had English language learner adults, uh, young adults, high school students. They were all in Spanish. And they had a virtual circle to talk about what, what was, what's been happening around, around uh, racial justice uh, in, in our community. And they spoke beautifully about how they saw the issue. And they asked each other, but how do you feel? And then they would challenge each other. So what would you do? And they, they took about 30 minutes to have this interactive conversation in their first language. And at the end of that, then they transitioned into their English lesson for the day. Uh, but they all were engaged and they were empowered to say what they felt and they felt heard and they felt supported. That's at the high school level. I also saw a, a kindergarten class where the students sat in a circle and they talk, and this is pre us closing in-person uh, uh, school instruction down, uh, but they sat in a circle and this was on a Monday morning and they went around the circle talking about what the favorite thing they did this weekend was. And then they got a chance to ask each other, what would you do if you could be the boss in your house? And it would your kindergartner talk about what they would do if they were the boss in their house. Now, after they did that, they transitioned into their first activity, learning activity. But everybody starts on a very positive, grounded note when they're together. Because as human beings, that's what we do. We like to connect with each other. But those are two examples of circles at probably the two extreme points in the continuum of learning in, in, in the school system, kindergartners and, and high school seniors. Uh, so it works for everybody. Yes, it's, it certainly sounds like it. And I think, I think you're almost having too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you love being the chancellor. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, 
these practices sound really great for personal and professional relationships. When you talk about SEL and you talk about restorative justice, and, and I'd like you to talk just a little bit more about how they go together, it all sounds uh, very foundational for, for being an adult and knowing how to navigate social relationships. Absolutely. Isn't this something we all need? It's something we all need. It's, it's, what, it's, what, it's what allows us to be citizens together in a, so, in a society. It's about communication. It's about trying to understand and have empathy for each other. So when we talk, I've talked about social emotional learning. So it's taking care of the whole child, taking care of emotional needs, not just the academics. It helps students express themselves and cope in healthy ways. It prevents incidents because students have a vocabulary and a language and more importantly, standing to be able to raise issues that they're going through and know that there will be open lines of communication. And restorative justice and restorative practices goes hand in hand because it's a philosophy and a set of tools and practices that students and adults can use when there is something that happens. So it responds to incidents in schools without pushing students out through suspensions. And the goal, if we're educators, the goal is to educate. So this helps us to restore any harm, emotional harm or other harm, or you know, hurting people's feelings or making people feel bullied. It, it helps to restore that, that harm that's been done to the community because the, the student has learned their lesson, but they're also part of the community. And the amazing part of this is that in restorative justice schools, schools that practice restorative practices, the students in many cases are leading the work by solving issues before they become issues, by having conversations before they become physical issues, where there is a propensity or the possibility that something is going to happen. A student will have a conversation with a trusted adult so that there's some intervention. So it's not no longer just writing the pink slip and sending kids to the office. It's about engaging the community and having the tools and the vocabulary to be able to have conversations so that incidents don't happen. They go hand in hand. And again, I've just been so impressed with what I've seen in, in, in schools where students uh, are actually leading the work uh, and giving each other the, the standing and the vocabulary to be able to have these kinds of questions and conversations. Are there, are there other uh, adults in the school community, parents, assistant teachers, safety officers, safety agents? Are there other people who are learning these skills as well so that students feel as though there are other trusted adults that they can go to besides their teachers? Absolutely. So that's that's an integral part of, of a restorative uh, approach and an SEL approach is that it's it doesn't belong in just one stakeholder group. Everybody, the school buys in to social emotional learning because that means everyone from school safety agents to uh, <clears throat> the wonderful folks that work in the cafeteria and, and in the kitchen, everybody uh, adopts a way of looking at how they interact with each other, and they also adopt the vocabulary to be able to have that kind of conversation. Uh, I'll give you an example of what that looks like. So I was in a middle school 
where there were a group of students and I just happened to be walking the hallways with the principal and there were two students that were outside of the classroom and the teacher was with them and obviously they had had words in the classroom. The teacher took them outside and said, okay, let's talk about this. I happened to walk by when the student said to the other student, are you open to feedback? And the other student said, yes, I am. And then proceeded to say, look, this is why I don't like what you just did. And this is why. Oh, this is why. And the other students said, well, that's not the way I meant it. This is not what I was trying to do. Just the very vocabulary in a middle mouth that says, are you open to feedback? Is Mm -hmm. permission to say, yes, I want to receive the feedback. I've been asked for the feedback instead of let me tell you why I was going to beat you down. So. (laughs) is an example of how a teacher creates the opportunity based on the circumstances and students have the vocabulary to then be able to de-escalate the situation. And and that's powerful in the hands of, of everyone in the school. That is powerful. Wow. Well, I can tell you that, um, you know, I was, I was a CAM counselor for many years and I actually had an opportunity to work as a, a substitute teacher many, many years ago. And I remember um, having students who were often withdrawn, who didn't want to participate uh, in activities or in the classroom. And I always worried about them the most. It really hearkened for me, it hearkened back to the days when when I was bullied in school and days when I felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to. And I I struggled to figure out how how to reach them. How do you how do you you know the ones who are talkative and outgoing are kind of easy, right? Um, it doesn't take a whole lot sometimes to get them to communicate. But those who are are really introverted and and don't don't want to come out of their shell are are, are much tougher. There was one student um, in particular that that comes to mind. Uh, he was uh, he was a tough case. It took weeks, and, and one day I finally, I finally found what he was excited, what got him excited, and that was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> he lit up and became so engaged as he was describing the individual turtles and what they stood for, and you know, I, I felt victorious, and I wish every educator, you know, well, I should say every educator I talk to has a story like mm-hmm. that, a child that they... Um, have reached or will child that they've tried to reach. I just wonder how have your experiences as an educator shaped your thinking on social emotional learning and and reaching those type of children, those those who are um, you know withdrawn. Yeah, so I think that's a heart of what a great story because that's the heart of what social emotional learning is. If you don't take the time to know the child, then the child you're not you're going to miss those opportunities, right? A student won't care to learn if he doesn't know you care. It's important I like that. to get to know who your students are and what's their spark. That's that's another term that's been written about in the literature as well. What sparks a student's creativity? What sparks their engagement? What makes a student light up? Uh, and, and students are different. It's not going to be the same for everyone, but you'll never find out if you're not uh, engaging with them and asking them those types of questions. So for me, it was the fact that, and I can still, uh, a very personal story for me, my, my kindergarten teacher was a, a, a wonderful woman named Mrs. Ellis. 
And Mrs. Ellis was a, a black uh, teacher that did not speak Spanish. And I only spoke Spanish. But every morning, I still remember Miss Ellis would come in and give all of us a hug. All of us got a hug. And I can still remember her when I smell that, that perfume. <laughs> all a hug, and, she'd say, and, and she would say, how are you feeling today, babies? And, and I still remember that. Because mm-hmm. here's an adult asking me how mm-hmm. I feel. And I wanted to have the language to be able to answer her in English. And she she loved me into English language proficiency <laughs> in, in, in her presence. Um, and she took time to figure out that, well, my dad played guitar. And do you, do you like guitar? Or do you like uh, the band? Or would you like? So then she connected me in kindergarten with the, the band teacher at my elementary. Oh. and would allow me to go and see the band. You had to be in fourth grade before you could actually be in the band. But she would allow mm-hmm. me to go and, and spend some time in the band room so that I could get my joy. Those kinds of things is what makes students want to be in school, but more importantly, want to do well. Because once they find their spark, there's nothing you can do to keep a student from uh, being engaged in, in, in pursuit of their spark. That is such a wonderful story. I, I've been sitting here just, just smiling as you talk. <laughs> so, so moving to hear that a teacher would care so much to, to do that. And, and that is what it takes. Counselor, we're at a, a really difficult time in our city, our country, with the pandemic, so many people feeling the effects of long-standing inequity, racism, and violence. And, and at the same time, we're seeing people rise up to demand change with young people at the forefront. Are there lessons in social-emotional learning and restorative justice practices that can help us move forward in a positive and, and healing way? Absolutely. I, I'm so <clears throat> appreciative of the fact that a year ago, we did such a big push around social emotional learning uh, because here we are, we're, 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 we're not perfect, but we are much better prepared than others to really help our community move through the traumatic effects, not only of the pandemic, but the killing of George Floyd and the uprising against racism and police brutality, you know, our students and our teachers, and we have curricula that we've developed, uh, but we have, the language and we have the pedagogy to help our youngest New Yorkers, our students work through these kinds of issues. We also have tools, you know, under Thrive, the Thrive Initiative in New York City, we've had school response clinicians that are in our schools that that are still working even in a virtual environment to check on students and check in on students. And teachers have people they can call on when they know students are having a bad time. And they get immediate care and immediate response. We also have social workers that are working hand in glove with our school counselors and our teachers to respond to students that are in crisis. You think of a million and one students, and and I could give you a million and one different examples. But I can tell you one example where a principal shared with me that monitoring student engagement, we we don't take attendance in a virtual way, but but we can monitor student engagement. And the the teachers in this school were very, very focused on if a student hasn't engaged in 48 hours, we reach out to them and we get others to start reaching out. And when they reached out to this student, a student in a middle school, and the social worker con- connected with the student and 
wanted to know, is everything okay? Well, everything wasn't okay. The student had just lost a parent to the mm. virus. And the student was the oldest in the home. And there were three younger siblings. And the other parent was sick. So the student was, in essence, full-time taking care of the younger siblings and, and was very apologetic about not being uh, connected to the school. Well, look, at that point, yes, th- that's, not, that's not what that student needed. So again, because we put the infrastructure in place to really, really move on social-emotional learning and student-centered supports, we were able to find this student and the circumstances and then get help to them so that they could navigate this crisis that they were facing. Those are some examples of, had we not made that investment a year ago, had we been trying to just stand up this kind of approach now, we probably wouldn't have found that particular case. And if the city of New York through Thrive hadn't invested in an infrastructure to allow us to connect students and families with resources, then even if we had found that case, how then we, would we have responded and been able to support that family? So I, I think all of this is going to be very critical to when we come out of COVID-19. Uh, it's going to be so important to helping us all heal. And I think healing is what uh, we're going to be really focused on as well. Oh, I, I agree with you. And you know, I am so glad that you and I stood together with the mayor to bring social emotional learning to all of our schools. I mean, clearly um, it's needed more than ever before. I know there are parents who want their children to keep building on their skills, especially their social emotional skills. Do you have any tips for them? Are there any resources available that they can tap into? Yeah, absolutely. So we have on our website, which is www.schools nyc.gov, we have a whole portal that has resources for parents. Many of those resources are exactly for that, uh, to give uh, parents tips about how do you talk to your student through this uh, pandemic, through this trauma. But I think the most important thing, and my tip for parents would be, is talk to your children. Talk to them about their emotions. Ask them. Uh, how are you feeling? What are you? And, and and I get it. It's tough because parents themselves are stressed with everything that's come with the pandemic. But creating the space to hear concerns, fears, hopes from from students, from children is going to be really, really important. So we have resources as well on, as I mentioned, on the school on the school district website. We talk to your students, but also check with your child's school for resources. Many of our schools are doing some incredible work that they themselves are developing and are providing to parents. So it's another resource, as well as our social-emotional learning partner, Sanford Harmony, has built a a toolkit of free resources designed for parents to use at home. And I'm going to I'm just going to give that website. It's Sanford, S-A-N-F-O-R-D, Harmony, H-A-R-M-O-N-Y.org. Sanford Harmony, all one word, dot org. It's available for free. Great resources as well. So those would be the tips I would have for parents as we head into the summer. Schools.nyc.gov. Please, everyone, check out this resource. Um, even if you're not a parent, you may know children in your building living next door, or you may have nieces and nephews uh, who can take advantage of this resource. That's schools.nyc.gov. Mental health support and resources 
are available for all students and families, including teletherapy, remote social-emotional learning tools, and much more. To get help any time of day or night, text WELL to 65173, call 1-888-NYC-WELL, or visit nyc.gov nycwell. Thank you so much, Chancellor, for being with us today and for everything you do to serve the families of New York City. I know our children are in good hands with you and, and all of the educators who work with you. You have a, a wonderful a background and, and skill set, but most of all, you've got a lot of heart, and we love you for that. Thank you so much, First Lady McRae. It's a real pleasure to be with you here today, and I have no doubt that once we navigate through this pandemic, we will all look back and say, this was one of the most difficult chapters in our lives, in our careers. But I, am, I also have no doubt because of the work that this administration, you and, and our mayor and the teachers and principals are doing, we will also look back and say, this was our finest hour. So thank you. One last question. I like to ask all of my guests this, how do you thrive? That's a great question. <clears throat> I thrive. <laughs> I thrive doing three things. And I've had an opportunity to do all three while I've oh. been confined to home. One of them is I like to cook. And I like to, I love to cook. And I've been trying to recreate the meals that my mother used to make mm -hmm. without any recipes. And I've had fun. But because I like to cook, it leads me to the second thing that helps me thrive, which is I like to exercise. So I like to run. So I've been running as well. And then my all-time favorite is uh, I love playing my instruments. So I have a guitar and a bass, and I put on my iTunes, and then I just play along and imagine myself in front of you. <laughs> well, I never would have guessed the first two. The third I would have, but the first two I never would have guessed. I'm glad you have such great tools. Thank you. And thank you again, Chancellor, for being with us today and for everything you do to serve the families of New York City.